The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. our passage for this morning, which comes out of the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Here I am. Good morning. Welcome to Central Bible. My name is Andrew. It's good to be with you guys. One of the teaching pastors here. Um, I am not supposed to be preaching this morning. I am preaching. Because Oshawa, who's our other teaching pastor, his oldest daughter, Abigail, her appendix ruptured this week. She's okay. Um, she had surgery two days ago, Osh? I think two days ago. Two evenings ago. So, praise God, she's okay. Um, Oshawa has a lot of kids and has been very busy. So you can imagine with figuring out childcare, being able to be with his oldest, um, Abigail. And so... Um, yeah, it wasn't, the, wasn't what the plan was, but, uh, but God knew, and we're grateful. She's healthy, and she's recovering. So would you just join me, and let's pray for the Hawthorne family. Yeah. That she can start eating? Okay. Yeah. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Hawthorns. God, I'm grateful for my brother, and thank you for sharing. Um, I'm, I'm grateful, Jesus, just that, um, yeah, Oshawa probably could have figured out a way to preach this morning, working at the hospital on the sermon, and I'm grateful that he was willing to say, hey, I need help, and um, can you help out with this? So, um, Father, I, I just ask that you would be with Abigail, continue to be with Oshawa and Sharon. Um, bringing them peace in the midst of a, a hectic situation. We ask for um, yeah, anxiety to be low um, because there is a trust in the goodness and the provision of their Heavenly Father. Particularly for Abigail, Jesus, would you give her, give her the ability to hold food down? We ask that particularly in Jesus' name today she would be able to begin eating again, um, even small amounts of food. 
that they wouldn't have to, to move into more scans and f feeding tubes, and, but God, that her, her stomach would be able to begin holding food again, that she would grow in strength. Jesus, we love Abigail. We love the Hawthorns. We pray for the siblings who are probably concerned and curious. Um, would you continue to meet the needs, and would you help us as a community, particularly we pray for the, the Hawthorne home community, um, continue to step up and help meet those practical needs. Thank you that we are not just people who tend to believe the same things and sit next to each other once a week for an hour and a half, but that we are people who are involved in each other's lives, that we are together a part of a greater family that each one of us have been adopted into. And in that family, we give ourselves to one another like real families do. We love you. We thank you. Help me now as we get into this good word. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> September 11th, 2001, was a crazy day. Our country was attacked. Uh, the, the, the maybe two of the most impressive structures we'd ever built um, in the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, and p potentially the greatest city that our country has to offer, um, was attacked that day. And for many of us, um, we can remember where we were, what was happening. Um, I remember I wasn't, for some reason, I wasn't in school that day. Most of my classmates remember being in class and then turning the TV on. I think I was homesick or had a, some kind of doctor's appointment, but I remember being at home and watching it on the news that morning. Um, an event like that, that you're not ready for, that comes out of nowhere, really confuses us, especially if we don't have a framework or categories to make sense of that news, right? We have this, this new information. We've been attacked. The World, Trade Centers have, the World Trade Center has fallen. How do we make sense of something so disorienting when we don't have a framework, a foundation to fit that news into? Um, it's very confusing, right? We were impenetrable. We are America. We are invincible. Um, we didn't think things like that, maybe, actively, but we had no reason to think otherwise. And so when something so jarring, this new news that is so odd and strange and out of nowhere, and in this case horrific, hits us, we don't really know how to make sense of it. Um, more positively, you could look at the moon landing. Is this, are the staves here today? Oh, they're not here, are they? Um, Mic up. Can you guys hear me okay now? Is that better? How are we doing? We're good. Okay. Sorry about that. Did we hear everything I just said? I talked loud. You think about the moon landing, right? Um, the moon landing we can make a little bit more sense of, but even that, what a crazy time. We went to the moon in the 60s. We landed on the moon. We space traveled. It happened. It wasn't great space travel, but it was some sense of space travel. Um, and that creates, right, this new, that news that we were able to accomplish this feat that maybe we knew about. Unlike the Trade Center attack, we, we didn't see that coming, right? With the, with the moon landing, we, we knew we were headed that direction. But even once we make it there, it creates wonder and a sense of what could be in all of us. 
And my point in all of this is just to say that this morning we're going to be looking at a group of men who come to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, by the way, not the same guy who writes John's gospel. Two different Johns. Um, I'll try to refer to the, the Baptist as the Baptist throughout the sermon to not confuse the author and John the Baptist. But John the Baptist is baptizing people, and he's preparing right, God's people for the Messiah that's coming. And there's these religious leaders who don't have a category in their minds to make sense of what's happening. They just don't get it. They think that their traditions and their ways of understanding God is the right ways. It makes the most sense to them. And when the gospel comes, when I mean the gospel this morning, I mean, is it okay? Okay. When I say the gospel this morning, um, I'm talking in particular about this, the specific news of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the God-man coming to save and rescue his people. Um, sometimes when I talk about the gospel, when you hear us up here talking about the gospel, we are talking about the entire story of, of God, uh, from creation to restoration, the entire thing. But this morning, we're, we're honing in and we're talking about this new news that's coming to God's people. And these religious leaders don't know what to do with it. And so one of the literary techniques that, that John, the writer of our gospel, uses is that he consistently will force us, the readers, to wrestle with whether or not we are more like the religious elite in this passage or if we're more like the Baptist and those he baptized. Are we convinced that because we can't make sense of who we are hearing God is, this Messiah, this Jesus, if we can't get him to fit into one of our categories in, within our framework, our, our framework of God and how we understand what it means to be a believer, then he doesn't actually exist, or he's not worthy of considering following. The Messiah in this passage, by the way, that word just means anointed, so the anointed one of God who is coming to rescue God's people. John the Baptist was making a bit of an impact. He was making some noise uh, among the crowds and among the people in this area around Bethany. He was baptizing folks. Um, and so it makes sense that some of these Jewish leaders, these religious leaders, would hear about it and say, what in the world is going on? Why is this guy baptizing people? And actually, it would be almost strange if they didn't come to question him and say, why? Or whose authority do you baptize in? Matthew 3, 5 through 6 says that people went out to John the Baptist from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So the impact that the Baptist was having was no small thing. And it makes sense that the religious leaders wanted to hear what was going on. Now, the gospel. The gospel is not only good news, which is what we often think of it as, but it is. It is good, great, awesome news. In this case, it's new. It is new news to the hearers. John the Baptist's role in bringing this news is to simply be a witness to the one he speaks about. 
right, to the a witness to Jesus. This news is so jarring, so bewildering to the religious leaders of his day, they find no place to understand it. They can't figure it out. And so his, back, his uh, function in bringing this news makes no sense within their framework. Now, Judaism knew all about ritual cleansings, right? Baptism was not a new idea to the Jews, but it was reserved for Gentiles who converted to Judaism, right? So it didn't make sense to them that John's going around baptizing Jews. Why would you be baptizing God's people? What do they need to be baptized into? So John calling Jews to be baptized prompts the question, what is this threshold, this line that they're crossing as they're baptized? What are they being baptized into? What is the new order or the new reality that would change these people that are being baptized? And so the promise that you and I know, right, because we know the whole story, that's on the horizon is not a new religion, is it? It's a person. So John is asked, are you the Messiah? Right? And in the text, the language that John uses to respond to that question, he's emphatic. The Baptist is like, absolutely not. He makes it very, very clear. He knows exactly who he is. He is not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? They ask him. Like, so maybe, right? They're thinking of these, uh, these end time figures from the Old Testament from the law and the prophets, they're thinking about these, what we would, the fancy theological term is the eschatological figures. These people that are supposed to come when everything is coming to an end, right? To announce that, hey, we're at the end. Are you Elijah? Now they think about Elijah because Elijah was a prophet who never died, right? He was drawn up into heaven. He never died. So they're looking, maybe, maybe this man's Elijah. And and the Baptist kind of resembles him a little bit. Elijah was kind of a, a gruff, um, sort of smelly character. And the Baptist is this guy in the wilderness. He's kind of un, unkept. He's gruff. He's stinky. He's known for eating locusts with a little bit of honey, which is gross. So they're not sure. Are you, are you Elijah? No. Okay, are you a prophet? Like, are you, are you like Moses? Uh, who, who are you? Like, what, what is this about? So, confused and befuddled as they were, they send some, some more representation to continue to question the Baptist. Now listen, their utter reliance and dependence upon their, their traditions and their ways of understanding God totally blinds them from seeing the good news that's before them. Their total reliance and dependence upon their traditions and ways of understanding God blinds them from seeing God on his way, as it were. The Jews' dependency upon their established way of understanding God stops them dead in their tracks as they desperately search for a category. If you're not 
If you're not the Messiah and you're not the prophet and you're not, you're, you're not, you're not Elijah, like, who, who the heck are you? Who are you? Right? After three questions that are kind of a yes or no, you notice they go to, then who are you? Like, give us an answer. We need to tell our leaders who you are. I wonder how many of us have become so certain of our positions that we've dumbed down our faith to the point of mere religion. How many of us have become so certain of the way that we understand God that we've dumbed down our faith to the point of mere religion, no longer containing any awe, any wonder, any questions, right? We simply cling to the answers we're sure of and we demand explanations when we don't understand something that we've never heard before. When we don't understand a new concept, a new idea, a new way of interpreting maybe this passage, right? You better prove to me why that's a reasonable way to interpret it. It's interesting because we have more data than these religious leaders did in their day. We've got the New Testament, don't we? They didn't have that yet. They were the making of the New Testament. Yet, we still create our own narratives, our own ideas of what Jesus must be like. We're all prone to this. We're humans. It's easy to see the religious leaders, if we're not careful, we'll paint them with such a broad brush, and we'll see them as these just idiot buffoons who were stubborn and malicious. And listen, some of them were. Some of them were bad, bad men. They were not good guys. They were out to hurt. They were out to manipulate God's word uh, for their own ends, to use religion to meet their own ends, to serve themselves. But listen, that's not all of them. Some of them were fervently seeking Yahweh. And they thought that their understanding of God was right. And anything that would butt against that, that would push against that, could not be made sense of. They could not make sense of it. It was too disorienting. Are you open to wonder? Are you open to be in awe? Are you still a learner when it comes to following Jesus? We need to be a people, a community, who are characterized by wonder, by awe, by being learners. Can I question my understanding of God or my understanding of the Bible without betraying God and becoming disloyal? Seriously, answer that question for yourself right now. Can someone close to you question God or their understanding of the Bible without betraying God or being disloyal? The answer should be yes. Right? But for many of us, we struggle with that idea. The Bible says it. I believe it. There we go. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. That's all we need to know. Many of us are convinced there's two options when it comes to faith, belief and unbelief. You accept it all or you don't. Even if you don't accept a part of it, then you don't really accept all of it and therefore you can't be a believer. You can't follow 
Jesus. And that sounds nice, and it's comforting. We like the control of that, right? We like to know where we're at. Except we have this really fickle thing called a heart. And I don't just mean the heart beating in your chest. I mean your will, right? The seat of your emotions. And the heart reveals to us often um, what is in contradiction to what we say we believe. Each one of us is on a sliding scale of belief. There is no black and white buttons that we push. Yes, I believe it all, or no, I don't. We're on a scale, and we're all somewhere within this range. And so we've got to be willing to wrestle with questions and not take on anxiety and fear when other people, especially those close to us, have questions. Last week, uh, earlier this week, I was watching this movie with my, my girls called The Croods. Has anyone heard of this movie? It's a cute Pixar kind of, I don't know if it's Pixar, but it's, they've seen it. And the premise of the movie is that this family is the last caveman family on the earth, okay? Um, to their knowledge, there's no one else that exists, and they kind of have this funny illustration of how the other families, the last few families didn't make it. Um, the world is kind of a, a desolate place. It's difficult for them to get food. They're a funny family. Um, but the father, his name is Grug. Grug? Grug. Grug, okay, thank you. Grug is convinced that what's kept my family safe, what's, what's kept us alive, is our willingness to stay in the caves when it gets dark. We stay low, we stay in the cave, we put the rock in front of the, the cave, and we're safe, Right? And so they only go out, really, to get food. And the daughter, this one particular character, this daughter, is she hates it. And she says to her dad, Dad, we're not living. We're just not dying. We're not actually living. We're just not dying. This isn't a way to live. This, this is no good. But he's so convinced, right, that this is what has kept us safe. This is what we know. This is what's kept us alive. We don't adventure out. We don't take risks. We stick to what we know. This other character, this, they find out that there's this other person that's alive. His name is Guy. So Guy, they find this other guy, right, uh, who, who's also on the earth, and he's also alive. And he's, he's telling them, look, the earth is going through. There's this huge volcano and all of these explosions, and we've got to get out of this area and get to this mountain off in the distance. We've got to go up this mountain. Right? And he, he kind of uses this cheesy phrase of, we've got to follow the light. Um, but I feel like it's a helpful metaphor because the dad of, of the caveman family, he just, he, he's going the whole way kicking and screaming. He cannot make sense of this potential reality uh, that, that this guy says they ought to follow. Um, but he's also not able to make sense of the fact that the caves are no longer a safe place. And so he reluctantly chooses to follow after this guy as he leads his family uh, towards this mountain and towards the light, as they follow the light. And I, and I think that's a helpful illustration for us, that sometimes we get so convinced that we're right um, or that we've, we've know, we know all we really need to know. We don't need to have that hunger to learn so much anymore. We can rely on what's safe and what's comfortable. If we stick to the, to the dark cave 
right? Though we can't see much, at least it feels safe. Rather than being willing to take risks and trust that God can handle our questions. Because he can. I'm not saying that we need to re-examine everything we know. Searching to find a new truth or, or some special form of enlightenment. But I am saying that we need to have a sense of awe and a sense of wonder about God. And I don't know about you, but I realized a few years ago, I just didn't really have that much. And I didn't hear it talked about in church much growing up. It was more about know what you believe, be firm in that, and that's your rock, that's your, that's your, you know, that's your salvation, that's what you stand on. And I've I got to tell you, it's been a little bit unnerving at times. It makes me feel uncomfortable, but I think that's good because I think Jesus made people feel a little bit uncomfortable to, to grow in having a sense of wonder, recapturing that sense of awe for God. A question for us. Is there anyone in the scriptures, particularly as we think about the New Testament, who is quick to receive Jesus almost right off the bat? Yes, it's the least of these, isn't it? And it's children. Childlike faith and those of a lowly place in the world are more open to seeing him as he is. It doesn't mean that these people completely understand every detail about who God is the moment they see him, right? It's not a matter of, of pure IQ and intellect. It's a matter of being legitimately open and having a sense of awe and wonder about God, letting God be God and being open to receiving him as such. They tend to be people who are deeply broken or who are humble, that recognize him and are open to him. And even though these folks were confused as well, like many of the disciples and many others who, who went on to follow Jesus, even though they were confused and unsure of who he was, they still had space in their hearts for faith in what God would truly be like. And that's all we've got. We've got to try to leave space in our hearts for letting God tell us who he is. Sometimes we get, we're too quick to be comfortable with, I know who he is. I don't have much else to learn. And if you don't think like me, something's wrong with you. And it's threatening to me. Let's continue now. So, it's weird, right? John the Baptist denies being Elijah, the prophet, Messiah. Jesus, in one of the other synoptic gospels, says that John is Elijah. So it's kind of a weird, what's going on here? Um, it seems the Baptist isn't totally sure of his role in what's going on and what he's doing. The Baptist didn't even understand the full implications of what he was doing. Um, you consider D.A. Carson, uh, a theologian, commentator, he says this, the Synoptic Gospels reported that Jesus identified the Baptist with the promised Elijah, but they never suggest that the Baptist himself made that connection. Here he refuses to make it, a refusal which, when placed beside the Synoptic evidence, suggests that he did not detect as much significance in his own ministry as Jesus did. 
That'll preach. But I don't think it's the main point of the passage, so we're going to keep going. Sorry. Um, Verses 22 and 23. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? In the original context, the Old Testament, right? Because John the Baptist is calling out as a voice in the wilderness. And he's, he's calling out like Isaiah did. So in the, the original context, in Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah is calling for an improvement to the road system in the desert to the east. They want, he wants there to be a leveling of the hills and the valleys to make straight the path for God's people to make it to where? To the promised land, right? And so you've got John the Baptist who's now calling out, make straight the way of the Lord, right? In other words, hey, somebody's coming. Get ready to follow him. John the Baptist was baptizing people who were hungry for renewal. Think about this. You've heard me talk about renewal a bunch this last year, but this is really important. Renewal, as I've said before, always begins with a remnant, a small group of God's people who are growing weary of sort of the ritualistic, traditional ways of seeking God that that don't really have heart anymore. It's more just ritual. It's more just doing. It's not that, that, that sense of desire for God. And when a remnant of people, right, are willing to seek fervently seek God because they've grown discontent with the way things are, that tends to be when renewal breaks out. And so this kind of is that moment here where renewal begins. Their fervent prayers and their wholehearted pursuit of God has been heard and the Messiah is now close. And in verse 24 and 25, now some Pharisees who had sent had been sent, questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? The Pharisees. So there's a group of religious leaders that all go to question John, right? So there's probably 20, 25 guys. And then a subset of them, after John denies being Elijah and the prophet and the Messiah, a subset of them is a group of Pharisees, smaller cluster within that group of religious leaders They go to question him, and they want to hear. They're really curious. Why? Why are you baptizing people then? And they're actually open to what he has to say. And here's why. The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who, unlike the the, the Levites and the priests and the Sadducees, they were persecuted really significantly under the rule of this bad, bad guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Didn't even have to... I nailed it. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, Under his rule, his goal was to rid, right, rid the Pharisees of their their religion, of their belief in Yahweh. And so one of the ways he tried to do that was to destroy the scriptures, the physical texts that they had. So they had, they were forced to grow in becoming oral communicators of God's word and the oral tradition And as they did that, they became a little bit more open to playing with what the tradition said. In other words, they were willing to adjust uh, and add to the the, the typical law that we think of, the Torah, 
um, they were willing to add to that law and say, not only do we obey the written word, but we have this oral tradition as well on top of that that we also follow because it makes us more pious and more holy. So they were known as, believe it or not, kind of like the liberal party. Um, if you think about the traditional like liberal conservative paradigm, which isn't even, even that isn't a great way to think of it, but that's as close as I could think of. So they're, they're, they're a little bit more flexible with God's word in that they, they have this oral tradition where they add to the list of the law to follow it. Um, and they're, the reason that they're open to hearing what John the Baptist has to say is because they were innovators. They were known as being people who were creative as they added to God's word, right, to follow him more fully and to do a better job than, let's say, those Sadducees did. They were known as people who were willing to be creative and they were open to new ideas. And so they genuinely are curious, why are you doing this? Why are you baptizing? The Synoptic Gospels show us that John the Baptist differed from others in how he identified those who were close to God in that he, did not, he didn't count you being related to Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, is how close you were to God, which is how they would have thought of it. If you were a descendant of Abraham, then you were close to God. No, no, no. John the Baptist says the thing that you needed was personal and individual repentance and faith. Those were the necessary qualifiers. And so he's baptizing people with that in mind, that you have repented of your ways and you are devout and committed to being a follower of God. Your allegiance is to God. And so in this way, John anticipates Jesus' insistence, right, that true uh, community would come out of not uh, whether or not you had the right race or the right relation uh, to, to a certain person or family, but on whether or not you have been baptized into his family. A new birth where repentance and faith were all you needed to be a part of this family. The religious leaders thought, surely John has to be a man of great stature. If he's baptizing in this way, he's got to be somebody who's got some incredible authority. But does the Baptist act like he has this kind of authority? Not at all, right? Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. The Baptist would dispel any notion that he was greater than Jesus, that he was greater than the one whom he's calling out for. John the Baptist, he responds to their questions by admitting that he does have authority from God to do these things, but he also says that he's nothing compared to the one he bears witness to. So in a society where the lowest possible service that a slave could perform for their master, which would be removing their shoes, taking off their sandals, for John the Baptist to say, I'm not even worthy to do that, that was crazy, unheard of. The reason why 
that act was so degrading and so low is because, frankly, back then, they wore sandals typically if they had them. If they didn't, they walked around barefoot and they walked through a lot of human and animal stuff. I think you know what I mean. So the Baptist is saying that these feet, right, these shoes that are probably disgusting, I'm not even worthy to touch them. I'm not worthy to unfasten them. Thomas Aquinas, uh, a 12th century theologian, says, says this about that moment. He touches on the greatness of Christ's superiority when he says, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to unfasten. As if to say, you must not suppose he ranks ahead of me in dignity in the way that one man is placed in front of another. Rather, he, the Messiah, right? Jesus is ranked so far above me that I am nothing in comparison to him. And this is clear from the fact that it is he, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to unfasten, which is the least of services that can be done for men. There could be nothing lower. Nothing lower than removing a person's shoe in this time. And the Baptist doesn't even feel worthy of that. It's interesting because I immediately think about Jesus. And what does he do for his disciples? He doesn't just take off their shoes, does he? He washes their feet. God always goes lower than we do. The king has come, right? And this is part of the reason that the religious leaders could not understand him. They couldn't make sense of him. There was no category to fit a king like this in, right? Because the, the prerequisite to be a, this kind of king was that you had to go lower and stoop down further than any servant or slave could possibly go. That's the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. And, and we, right, you and I, are his servants, aren't we? If Jesus is willing to wash the crap off of his disciples' feet, quite literally, right, to make this, this disgusting part of the body that is so undesired, right, to make it lovely, to restore it, to clean us in this way, in a, in a very intimate way, what kind of work are we called to, friends? So often we get caught up in titles, positions, reputation. I don't just mean, by the way, that when we're servants, we're called to do tasks that aren't fun, right? Menial tasks. As servants of the king, we're called to do meaningful tasks, right? As in our allegiance to Jesus, He's called us to do tasks that are both menial and meaningful. But the prerequisite for both is that we would be willing to go low. That we would be willing to stoop. And so, it's amazing, right? Could it be that a love like this, so scandalous, so provocative, a love that's willing to go so low... That this kind of love not only exists, but it wants me. And it wants you. He wants us. He wants you. He's for you, and he loves you. 
and he's willing to stoop low to wash your feet. I wonder if you see yourself as a servant of the king. Do you see yourself as a servant in Christ's family? I think we've lost that, that term, and we need to recapture it as a church living in this time. Would we see ourselves as servants? Really, this passage has two major themes in it, doesn't it? That those with childlike faith would be open to receiving him. Those who are willing to have that sense of awe and wonder about God would, would, would be the ones that are open to him. And those who are willing to serve him. It is those two things, childlike faith and being a servant, only those who are willing to to have that kind of faith and who are willing to serve in that way will go on to be in his kingdom, who will experience his kingdom here and now and who will go on forever with him in that kingdom. It's, it's a strange thing, serving others. It feels like you're losing your life when you're willing to give yourself up for, for the sake of another. And I don't just mean something as extreme as dying. Maybe that. But to do something for someone else's sake without, without thinking about how it would serve you, to really see others, not as a means to your end, but you as a means to their end, to their good. What if each one of us had the posture that as we look at our brothers and sisters, both here but in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our areas of recreation? What if we had the posture that my goal was to see that person be built up? That I am in service to them. Not just doing whatever they ask, but for their good. What if we had a vision for that? For different people that we have influence over? What if we had a vision for that in our own families? I think it would change more than we know. He must increase. We must decrease. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, grateful for your word. It's good. It's sufficient for us. And it's true. So often... We trick ourselves into thinking that if I, if I have to give in this way or if I give too much, I'll be miserable or I'll be unhappy. Or even, God, we've tricked ourselves into thinking that you don't want us to be servants. You've called us to something greater somehow, which is crazy, but... but God, we get so lost in our own traditions and our own ways of thinking about you that we convince ourselves of, of realities that are so far from, from the truth. Father, the reality that you've called us into, you've gently invited us into, is one that, that is so counter to the ways of our world. It doesn't make sense to us initially. But if you would just give us a vision for the kind of impact and glory we could bring to your name by becoming men and women who are known for their childlike faith mm -hmm. and for their willingness to be lowly servants of others.
this neighborhood, this city, would begin to become a different place. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just, we're not talking about politics. God, we're talking about a transformation of the heart, a renewal. Jesus, we want that. Would you help us to grow as men and women in our childlike faith? That we would be truly open to you, that you would give us a sense of wonder. I pray particularly for those of us who've been following Jesus for a long time. Praise God, the experiences, the wisdom, and the insights there. But Lord, there may be a sense of wonder that's been lost. We ask in Jesus' name that you would begin to renew that in our older brothers and sisters. God, would you help us young bucks who are so inundated with the cultural norms of our day that tell us we've got to be, we've got to look out for number one. You've got to get your own. You only live once. Would we fight those scripts and replace them with a script that says, I seek the end of others for their own good, not for my own. I am a means to their end to serve them and to love them and to see them become who you've created them to be. Would you help us, Jesus, to become men and women who do that? Jesus, lastly, we just praise you for the the beauty of baptism. That this morning, we rehearse something that's been going on for millennia as we remember, again, through a visual sign, the cleansing of of Christ. We pray for these sisters that you would just build in them now a sense of love for you and that they would feel your love through this community as we watch with smiles. We're grateful for the families that are here. Help us to celebrate well as your family this morning, Jesus. It's for your glory. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.